0: this metaphorical toolbox expanded. And particularly with each revision of the RAD notice, it just got bigger. There were more tools available to public housing authorities.
1: Welcome to Buzz House, a make tilly podcast where you can find all the buzz around multifamily housing. I'm Don Bernards, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing
2: practice. And I'm Garrett Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country.
1: Each week, we'll bring you a guest or a topic in the multifamily housing industry that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. Our guest today on the Buzz House is Jen Cryer, a colleague of ours at Baker Tilly, who is a repositioning manager on the real estate advisory team and focuses on working with public housing authorities looking to reposition their public housing stock. Jen will get into a little bit about what repositioning is and a few related matters. Before having that discussion with Jen, we want to give you a few updates from around the industry. The National Multifamily Housing Council recently came out with their Market Trends newsletter and the statistics show for a... Super sound multifamily rental market despite the pandemic. There of course are a few things that weekend, but just here are a few interesting statistics that I found from the newsletter. The noncurrent rate for multifamily loans at all FDIC insured institutions, after reaching an all-time low 11 basis points, which means that only 11 basis points of all, all loans were uh, kind of in troubled status, rose only up to 26 basis points in the fourth quarter of 2020, but well well below the 4.65 percent during 2010 during the recession. So a few more loans may be in the troubled status, but very, very few overall. It really shows that multifamily properties are kind of kind of hanging in there through the pandemic. No surprise that the volume of apartment sales transactions in the second quarter of 2020 was really the lowest since the early 2010s. But again, the fourth quarter transactions picking up, 62.5 billion dollars of transactions, cap rates, 5% or below and a majority of institutional uh, assets. so very strong there. And then looking at, at rent growth, there were definitely a couple markets, both on the coast, Seattle, New York saw significant decreases actually in average rental rates, but overall the top 150 rental markets in the country, 124 markets actually saw modest rent growth during the last four quarters, again, even through the pandemic. Switching gears uh, on a quick note on construction costs, Garrett and I have been talking about construction costs for probably the last two or three podcasts. And, and while the futures market reaches peak in early May, and then we saw and we're happy to see that that trending down, the actual cash price, where the price which is the price that sawmills charge distributors and wholesalers kept rising through the end of May. But this has now dropped as well. Still, obviously, very, very high compared to 12 months ago. But a couple of positives, this is really just kind of supply and demand economics. Really, we've seen employees coming back to sawmills. We've seen buyers pull back a little bit. Single-family home starts are actually down nine percent in April compared to March, so actually a little bit less demand. So we'll kind of keep our eyes on that, but kind of exciting from that perspective that we're seeing those those real cash prices going down. Now, Garrick, I'll turn over to you for a couple of updates that we've seen uh,
2: legislatively. Yeah, thanks, Don, and uh, you know just to just to discuss what you just talked about. I think it's always good when you hear that there's a decrease in the construction costs going down because it was rising a lot and, and a lot of deals were suffering for it. So hopefully that starts to taper off. Yes, I'll get into a little bit about the Affordable Housing Improvement Act. It's going to be part of the American Jobs Plan. And so recently the White House released a fact sheet providing further detail on these housing investments as it's proposing in the American Jobs Plan. So in total, this administration is proposing $213 billion in direct housing funding and more than a hundred billion in new and expanded tax credits to modernize existing and produce more than 2 million affordable and sustainable homes. that's pretty good news, right? So these proposals include significant investments to various housing programs, including the housing credit, the home program, the housing trust fund, and enactment of the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. So proposed funding specifically includes these amounts. I'm just going to kind of list them out with a dollar amount. So you got, yeah, $55 billion for the housing credit with a focus on increasing production in high opportunity neighborhoods. You got $35 billion for the home program. 45 billion for the housing trust fund 12 billion for the capital magnet fund and 2 billion for new project based rental assistance agreements which are the first new agreements in 20 years enactment of a new federal tax credit based on the neighborhood homes investment act to support new construction or a substantial rehab of owner occupied homes and 40 billion for the public housing capital fund so that's great, but e- even in addition to, to the work on the infrastructure bill, Biden recently released his full fiscal year 2022 budget request, and it's proposing a 9 billion, which comes out to about a 15% increase to HUD's budget from 2021. So highlights of these requests include 30.4 billion for housing choice vouchers, which is 4.6 billion over the 2021 enacted levels. This is expected to provide enough funding to serve approximately 200,000 more households with a focus on those who are homeless or fleeing domestic violence. You also got 3.5 billion for homeless assistance grants um, and 3.77 billion for the Community Development Block Grant Program and 1.85 billion for the Home Investment Partnership Program, which is about you know 500 million over the 2021 enacted levels. Also, as a part of this 2022 budget, The budget proposes creating a new type of housing credit authority termed Opportunity Housing Credit Dollar Amounts, the OHCDA is is what I'll call it. So these OHCDAs would have a separate credit ceiling from traditional housing credits set at 118% of the aggregate amount of traditional housing credit volume cap each year for five years, 2022 through 2026. This budget actually does not include an increase in traditional housing credit volume cap, unfortunately. And these would primarily be in census tracts of opportunity, which includes census tracks that are in one or more DDAs, difficult to development areas, or have low poverty or other advantages as defined by the Treasury Secretary. So this budget does not provide any detail, however, on what is meant by primarily. So it is unclear the extent which these OHCDAs might be used outside of the census tract of opportunity. And, you know, the budget also proposes to increase the DDA basis boost from 30% to 50% for 9%. Traditional housing credit developments and OHCDAs. The change to the DDA basis boost would be permanent. So, for, before we get in with Jen, that, that's some great stuff. I think Don, you had a couple more things you wanted to throw out there,
1: right? And Gary, that's just so interesting, right? We've got you know the Affordable Housing Improvement Act. We have the 2022 budget, which actually includes certain things on the housing tax credit uh, that is maybe not part of the Affordable Housing Improvement Act. So, just a lot of things really to kind of to kind of follow. And and as we talk to various lobbyists and others in the industry, you know, kind of keeping track of it. Just so many, so many things on the table, right? And as Garrick, no, just one last item, which will be a good transition into Jen, is that HUD has recently made available a new guide to public housing repositioning, which reviews the different options and associated planning considerations available to public housing authorities or PHAs as they consider their long, their portfolios over the long term. The focus of this guide is on converting properties currently assisted under public housing platform to the Section 8 platform. It has essentially three guides, one for medium and large public housing authorities over 250 units, uh, one for small public housing authorities from 51 to 250 units, and actually one for very small public housing authorities with 50 or fewer units. And and of course, each guide addresses the unique characteristics and opportunities available to the PHAs uh, of, of their respective sizing group. So that is out there, and we can actually provide a link on our website to that document. Garrick, uh, kind of back to you to jumping into our discussion with Jen.
2: Yes, that's what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> that was a lot of stuff that we had to go over, though, because a lot of it's pretty interesting, and, it, and if some of this stuff gets pushed through, I mean, it's be great for the industry. But but let's, let's get with Jen, our guest. So, Jen, why don't you go ahead and, and start out by letting our listeners know a little bit about your background in repositioning with public housing?
0: Hi, Garrick. Hi, Don. It's good to hear you both. Thanks for having me on today. My start in the industry was at a large housing authority during the days of HOPE Six. I had the chance to spend 10 years at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, as we know it. And I was fortunate to be on the HUD team when the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD, started back in 2012. From that point, I was a RAD transaction manager working through RAD conversions with public housing authorities of all sizes. (laughs) Before Baker Tilly welcomed me to this team, I was at another firm guiding housing authorities and developers through repositioning of public housing.
2: Well, we're glad to have you too, and that kind of leads me to my first question because you said you worked six years in repositioning with HUD. So, let's <laughs> go ahead and dive into some questions, so maybe our listeners can, you know, can understand kind of what exactly we're, we're, we're sort of talking about. So, let's just start with. What is repositioning and how, how is repositioning different from, let's say, recapitalization?
0: Well, it's pretty fun to be on the Buzz House podcast and talk about two buzzwords in the affordable housing industry. The credit here goes to HUD for these two definitions. The term repositioning as we talk about it in the industry means removing a property from the public housing program and replacing it with Section 8 assistance. It's a conversion of subsidy from the Section 9 public housing program to Section 8, which is a more stable funding platform. Let's encourage the listeners to hear the distinction between that and recapitalization which is the use of current agency funds or third-party sources of funds to complete necessary physical improvements to a public housing property. This often takes place by leveraging that Section 8 rental assistance for either debt or equity. Recapitalization could also include acquisition or new construction of buildings.
2: Well, thanks, Jen. That was a, that was kind of a great detailed kind of explanation between repositioning and recapitalization. And so if we have some PHA listeners right now and, and given that sort of explanation, what does that mean for them if they're looking at repositioning their public housing but for like the very first time, if they've never done this before?
0: Public housing authorities now have more options than ever when considering the repositioning strategy that best fits their vision. This is whether the agency is interested in starting with one property or bringing multiple properties into a repositioning plan at one time. It also applies to housing authorities of all sizes. There's a lot of options and I'm so happy that we're seeing this across the industry. When HUD's Office of Recapitalization, or Office of Recap for short, began the RAD program, the program's goals were unquestionably meaningful and relevant. At the time, the RAD program was the only program at HUD to offer housing authorities the ability to convert subsidy from Section 9 public housing to Section 8 and offer the option to leverage Section 8 rental assistance for debt and equity in order to complete physical improvements, therefore ensuring long-term viability. This was a transformative step for HUD and truly a valuable repositioning tool. Over the years, we all saw the RAD program achieve substantial success and support from the affordable housing industry and Congress. Along with the program's success came additional tools and the metaphorical toolbox expanded. As that was happening, HUD program offices were collaborating. More good news and more on that in a couple of minutes. The bottom line for housing authorities just starting to look at repositioning is that now we see this toolbox turning into a tool store. And those agencies considering repositioning are not just provided with a toolbox like our grandfathers would carry, but it can be likened to driving up and walking in to a tool store, and kudos to HUD for that.
1: Jen, I absolutely love that analogy. I've never heard that—the toolbox, the tool store. I'm taking that. I'm taking that one with me. I love that one. That's a that's that's a that's a great analogy. <laughs> Jen, I know we talked about and just right, just everything available to to someone and you know entering a PHA, entering into repositioning for the first time. Maybe how about those that have maybe closed a deal or two still have public housing units, does, does that change things? How are there opportunities for, you know, same different opportunities for those that have closed but still have some PHA units in their portfolio?
0: Ah, well, it sure does, at least from my perspective. A housing authority that closed a RAD deal or a Section 18 action years ago will certainly have more options for repositioning as we've talked about. They're walking into the tool store now instead of looking at the toolbox in the garage. And so let's think about a tool store versus a toolbox. What else is different? Staff, resources. And I mean that in a very positive way, having, had the pleasure of guiding housing authorities through these repositionings over the years. Uh, This is HUD coming in and being involved uh, in such a thoughtful, intentional, and useful way. HUD program offices continue to collaborate with each other and housing authorities to make the repositioning experience more smooth. Huds also recorded several repositioning webinars. They're all posted for the public. And there are more tools, more resources, and more team coordination is, is really the takeaway here. A conversion today is different from a conversion even 12 months ago.
1: Good. I didn't even think about that. Right, just how things could look different from three years ago, or like you said, it was 2018, and you alluded to Jen. My next question is, you know, what's what's new? And you like you said, it's it's Huds coming coming out like seemingly almost yearly now, or even more frequently with with updates and things like that for for these for the, for the tool store. What what's what's a, one or two things, Jen, that, that's, that's new that our listeners should be aware of?
0: How much time do we have? A lot is new in the world of repositioning. The world of repositioning is constantly evolving. Uh, The offices of RECAP, Public and Indian Housing and the Special Application Center or SAC have collectively and individually done a great deal of work to add innovative tools and flexibilities. Over the last couple of years, like we've talked about, and couple of months, there's a revised notice, uh, PIH 202107, covering Section 18 demolition disposition and new RAD Section 18 blends. This notice offers housing authorities the ability to blend RAD rents with project-based voucher budget authority through Section 18. There's a small PHA blend for housing authorities with 50 units or less remaining in their portfolio, and a construction blend that's based on the level of rehab or construction. Since we could do an entire podcast on this notice in particular, I'll leave the rest of the details to get into on another day. A big thank you though to our team for linking to that notice so our listeners can reference it. And also linking to HUD's repositioning guides, uh, the new Faircloth to RAD guidance. Uh, And all of these pieces uh, really drive home that, things are ever-changing here, but also that our team is happy to help uh, answer questions and provide resources anytime.
2: Thanks, Jen. So what about any advice for those starting to consider repositioning? Is there anything specific they need to know, or or do you have any, uh, any little golden nuggets there?
0: Sure. My advice is twofold. To any agency considering repositioning, this is the advice I give myself and my family when faced with a challenge. Take a deep breath and know that you're supported. Repositioning is a worthy option to consider and can be very beneficial, but it is not easy. Change is hard, even when your agency might decide it's the right thing to do. Secondly, know that talking about the agency's long-term goals and visions for the agency and its overall portfolio will be a crucial first step.
1: With that, we uh wrap up today's episode. Jen, thank you again very much for joining today. Uh, listeners, please reach out to Jen with any questions around repositioning. We'll definitely have Jen back in the future. And thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to BuzzHouse. To receive a notification when new episodes are available, please subscribe to BuzzHouse, a Baker Tilly podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out bakertilly.com. And if you have a suggested topic, please send them to build at bakertilly.com. That's
2: B-U-I-L-D at bakertilly.com.